So this message today is number three in our series on discerning the will of God, God's sovereign will. Last Sunday, we, we looked at the different ways that God revealed himself and his will to different men that he had called to be his servants and his mediators. Among them were the canonical prophets and men like Moses Elijah and Elisha, they were the three miracle-working prophets in the Bible. We also saw that there were false prophets who appeared, people who practiced forbidden occultic means of trying to seek a revelation from the gods. That was an abomination to God, and it was strictly condemned, and those who did so under the Old Testament Mosaic law were to be put to death. Now, one means of revelation God used in the Old Testament that I I failed to mention last week was angelic visitations. In the New American Standard Bible, these celestial beings, who are really messengers of God, are referred to 196 times, 103 times in the Old Testament and 93 times in the New Testament. Now, because they are spirit beings, they are usually not seen unless God gives the ability to see them and they manifest themselves to people, usually in the form of a human. Sometimes they manifest themselves in dreams and visions as well. But I do want to note this. Sounds like a large number, but Their appearances actually are quite rare, given the span of the Bible. And once again, just as when God revealed to himself in dreams and visions and spoke to people audibly, it's it's always in connection with the fulfillment of a divine purpose. Usually that purpose is is redemptive. In Daniel chapter 8, if you would turn there, Daniel 8, verse 15, then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and seeking the meaning that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the the banks of the Ulai who called and said, Gabriel, make this man, Daniel, that would be, understand the vision. So Gabriel is receiving a charge from someone only described here in the Bible as as a man's voice. Many believe that that was was God. So he came near where I stood and be, be Christophany, appearance of Christ, although he didn't appear. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid. Notice the reaction. I was afraid, and I fell on my face which was the typical reaction that people had when they were encountered by God in in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. And it don't have time to go into it, but it is really a quite remarkable vision. All the visions in Daniel's dreams in Daniel were pretty remarkable. But if you go into Daniel chapter 9, it's a great prayer of uh, confession for the sins of Israel. And it, and in Daniel 9, it says, in beginning, I think it's in verse 20, now while I was speaking, praying, 
and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of, of my God. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, which is what we just read in chapter 8, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. So this is a rather incredible appearance of the angel to, to Daniel. Now, one thing I also stressed in message two was the fact that, that both miracles and revelations were very rare over the course of thousands of years and never about personal matters. There is no revelation of God in the scripture to anyone about some minute, what we would call insignificant personal matter, although it may not be significant to, to as people think about it. Graham Goldsworthy, he's a uh, theologian from Australia, and he wrote in uh, a book that he put out called God in Wisdom. God and Wisdom, Israel's Wisdom Literature in the Christian Life. And notice what he says here. Every case of special guidance to individuals in the Bible has to do with that person's place in the outworking of God's saving purposes. There are no instances in the Bible in which God gives special and specific guidance to the ordinary believing Israelite or Christian in the details of their personal existence. And he, he wrote a trilogy on the Old Testament. He's an Old Testament scholar. So over the course of the next few weeks, I will address the, the three wills of God in Scripture. Today, God's sovereign will, which is often hidden. And then you have God's prescriptive will. Some call this the will of command or the moral will of God, which is clearly revealed to us in the scriptures. So we don't have to guess about that. And then I also added on here God's desired will, which really has to do with the, the attitude or the heart of God pertaining to to things that please or displease him. His desired will is not always fulfilled. God desires that all men would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, but all men are not saved, and we'll get more into it at that time. Absent from these different wills of God in Scripture is God's perfect will for your life in the sense of an ideal plan that he has for you in the choices that you make. Some liken this to the bullseye in the center of the target. This is how they call God's perfect will. The bullseye in the center of the target. He has the perfect man or woman for a young person to marry. And if they don't marry that person, they miss the bullseye. He has the perfect job for you. And if you're not in that perfect job, you've missed the bullseye. He has the perfect ministry for you, and likewise, he has the perfect place for you to live. And this, this holds true in untold 
thousands and thousands of decisions that we make. I don't know how many decisions we make. I'll talk about that in a moment. But if you fail to find that out, that perfect will out, if, if you miss the bullseye according to this thinking, then you must settle for something less. That would be an incredible burden for anyone to bear. So thankfully, it doesn't exist. There is no perfect will of God for your life. There is, however, a perfect will of God stated in Romans 12. And I'm not contradicting myself here. Romans 12.1, I beseech you, brethren. Therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, how does that happen? Through the scriptures. Right? It doesn't come through a special message of God to you alone. It comes through the scriptures that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will. That's teleos in the Greek of God. Teleos means complete or mature. So according to the scripture, we are mature when we stop conforming to the, the mold of this world and allow ourselves to be continually transformed by the renewing of our minds, which comes from Scripture, through the work of the indwelling Holy Spirit as He takes that Word of God and makes it real to us and convicts us and so forth. This is God's perfect will, according to Scripture, which is good, spiritually mature, and pleasing to God. Now, I just want to kind of give a little disclaimer here, I guess, in a sense. And that's my limitation when it comes to talking about the sovereignty of God. I think you would feel the same way, right? Uh, I do not have all the knowledge that it would take to fully expound this subject. As a matter of fact, I was really quite surprised. I have a lot of theology books, and I looked in a lot of theology books on the subject of the sovereignty of God. And there was very little written. And that kind of surprised me. Some came under the question of, they brought it up under the question of providence, God's providential care. Some under the question of theodicy, which is the matter of evil. You know, what are we to think of all the evil in this world and so forth and so on. But actually in, you know, comprehensive statements, uh, not that much, not that much. So that's one limitation, mine, and then personal knowledge. And then secondly, I don't have the time in the series that it would take to cover this subject comprehensively, at least as comprehensively as I can. And again, I do not have all the answers. So if you come to me for all the answers pertaining to the sovereignty of God, I don't have them. I have ideas. I know some things, but I don't know all things. Deuteronomy 29, 29. What does it say? The secret things belong to the Lord our God. So there are places we just, we can't go. And uh, we can't completely know. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed. Where, where do we find that? In the word of God. Belong to us and to our children forever that we may what? Moses said, do all the words of this law. Romans said that we might be complete and mature and live a life that's pleasing to him. 
And so we have all of that in the scriptures, right? He's given to us everything that pertains to life and godliness. But even with the things revealed to us in the scriptures, we have limitations in our understanding of them, let alone trying to figure out all the secret things of the Lord, right? The things that, that God has not revealed. So I'm going to give you this definition. You can find different variations of this. This was my own compilation. The most practical definition I heard of the sovereignty of God is that God can do anything he wants to do, anytime he wants to do it, anywhere he wants to do it, any way he wants to do it to accomplish whatever purpose he desires. All right. But you probably forgot that already. So here, God can and does. And I think this next statement here is, is critical. God can and does consistent with all of his divine attributes accomplish all that he has decreed by his supreme authority and power without failing. I think that's a fairly easy to understand statement that God can do anything he wants to do, but he has to do these things and he does these things consistent with his perfection, with all of his, his attributes. And what he desires to do, he accomplishes. We call that his will of decree. And he accomplishes that. There can be no, no way in which God is going to fail to do what he has determined to do. Because he is the all-knowing, almighty God. So God must be sovereign. We could begin with this statement here. God must be sovereign in order to be God. Right? I mean, I think that's axiomatic. Psalm 115, verse 1. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory because of your mercy, because of your truth. Why should the Gentiles say, so where is their God? But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. I read by a reliable source that in the book of Isaiah, Every time God says, I will or I will not do such and such, is, is, is an expression of his sovereignty. I will or I will not. And that occurs in the book of Isaiah 191 times. Some are conditional and some are unconditional when it comes to the I wills of God. So we need to be careful when we examine those statements, and we must do so carefully. You mean just the statement of, of God's uh, incredible demonstration of his sovereignty and power in Isaiah 44, 24. You can turn there if you want. Isaiah 44, 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and he who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who makes all things. Takes a supreme power to do that, right? Takes a sovereign power to do that. I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad my, the, the earth by myself. He didn't need any help. Who frustrates the signs of the babblers and drives diviners mad, those people who claim revelation from the gods, but it's false. 
who turns wise men backward and makes their knowledge foolishness, <laughs> who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, you will be inhabited when it was in ruins following the Babylonian captivity. To the cities of Judah, you shall be built when they were all just lying in rubble. And I will raise up her waste places, who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, now this is the king of Persia, not yet born. Cyrus is mentioned by name. Cyrus was the one who gave the edict for the Jews in, in Babylon to come back to the city of Jerusalem. He allowed the rebuilding of the or the, the after the destruction of Babylon, the Persians conquered them, and Cyrus gave a degree to go back. He is my shepherd, and he will perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you will be built, and to the temple, your foundations will be laid. Now just jump over to Isaiah 46, verse 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, desiring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. And here's a statement of his sovereignty, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. That's Cyrus, King Cyrus of Persia, who we mentioned in chapter 44. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it, or decreed it, and I will also do it. So there's no question here about the sovereign authority of God. Isaiah 14, 26, the Lord of hosts has sworn sailing saying, surely as I have thought, so shall it come to pass. And as I have purposed, decreed, willed, so shall it stand. Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. That's, that's a sovereign kingdom, a sovereign rule. Psalm 135, verse 5, for I know that the Lord is great, and our Lord is above all gods. That's the false gods of the nations who are powerless. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deep places. So number two, if you're following your outline, God doing whatever he pleases is sovereignty. No man can prevent him from accomplishing his will when he is determined to accomplish it. He can do all that he wills, but he will not do all that he can. He doesn't do all that he can. He can do too much more. God's sovereignty also demands omnipotence, right? Omnipotence, the, the Hebrew word, El Shaddai. We sing about that. It's beautiful, actually the all-powerful God. His sovereignty demands omnipotence and omniscience because a man may have the will to do something, but, but
but he lacks the knowledge or the intelligence or the power to do it. That is not the case with God. And you, look, you, you need not look any further than creation to see God's omniscience and power in full display. Jeremiah 32, verse 17. Ah, this one of those, ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your what? Your great power. What, what, what kind of a power does it take? To bring everything into existence out of nothing. That's great power. You have made the heavens and the earth by your great power. An outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. Aren't you glad for that? That's a, com that's a very comforting thing. There is nothing too difficult for God when he wills to do it. Psalm 147 verse 5 says, Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. So he mentions both the, the power of God, the omnipotence, which means all power, and his infinite understanding, his omniscience, his knowledge of all things. God doing what he pleases, because he certainly can do that, and determines is, is not inconsistent with the decisions that he has given men to make. Men and women will make what I've termed here many libertarian choices, free will decisions in the course of their lifetime. You can't compute how many decisions you have made over the course of your lifetime? How many did you make today from the time that you got up in the morning to right now? In making those choices, men do not know how God is sovereignly working in it all. Usually we find this out by looking back, right? And in making those choices, men do not subvert the sovereignty of God, they actually fulfill it. Researchers at Cornell University, and again, this take it, take it for what you think it's worth, but researchers at Cornell University estimate that we make 226.7, now how did they get that, decisions each day on food alone. And this is also I found interesting, that a teacher makes over 1,500 educational decisions every school day. More decisions minute by minute than a brain surgeon, but they don't get the, the same pay. Some researchers put the number of decisions we, we make while awake as high as 30,000 per day. Seems high to me. I think it's impossible to know the exact number, what the average number of decisions we make every day. But there are plenty of them. And the question then is, are we free to make most of them? Are we free to make them? Yes. Some we are compelled to make, right? You stop at a stop sign, right? Probably if you had your one to exercise your libertarian free will, you would you would go through. Or if there's nobody there, you would go through. But but you want to be obedient to God, right? 
and you don't want to get a ticket, so you stop. But is God compelling us by a divine decree to make every single one of those decisions that we have to make? Most of them incredibly inconsequential. No, I, I doubt he, he doesn't care very much if I eat Cheerios or pancakes for breakfast. I have a choice in that matter, right? So A.W. Tozer in The Knowledge of the Holy, which is about the attributes of God, chapter 22, he has a chapter on the sovereignty of God. And it's a good statement, so listen. He says, God sovereignly decreed that man should be free to exercise moral choice. And man from the beginning has fulfilled that decree by making his choice between good and evil. Takes you all the way back to the garden and the choice of Adam and Eve. When he chooses to do evil, he does not thereby countervail the sovereign will of God, but fulfills it. Inasmuch as the eternal decree decided not which choice the man should make, but that he should be free to make it. If in his absolute freedom God has willed to give man limited freedom, who is there to stay his hand or say, what doest thou? Man's will is free because God is sovereign. A God less than sovereign could not bestow moral freedom upon his creatures. He would be afraid to do so. So we actually fulfill the sovereign will of God in the decisions that we make, because he willed that we should be free to make them. Now, God's sovereign will, the things he has absolutely decreed, will always come to pass. So you cannot miss it. You don't have to go and try to search it all out. It, it just may take time for you to see it in the outworking of your own life, or you may never see it in your lifetime. Job never knew the source of his trials. God's sovereign will was being fulfilled in allowing Satan to do what he did with limitations, the limitations that he imposed upon Satan in, in his assault against Job. But Job, as far as we he never knew what was really going on. The explanation he got in the end was in the forms of questions. Where were you, Job? Right? Where were you, Job? And he bowed in, 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 in sackcloth and ashes. In, in repentance for entertaining the thoughts that he did. So God's sovereign will always come to pass. But here's the hard part. God's sovereign will, which we don't, don't see, it always requires trust, a deep level of trust. What if it is God's will, unalterable will, that you will one day become a martyr for Jesus Christ. That God would call you to martyrdom, as he has many, many, many individuals. Well, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, don't fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. It's all they can take from you is your life. And what is your life anyway? It's just a vapor. It appears here and then it's gone. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Fear him who is sovereign, who has the ultimate supreme power. 
And then Jesus said, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? I think the King James has farthing. And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So this is a typical form of what's called rabbinic argumentation from the lesser to the greater. And the teaching is, as the rabbis would present it, is if God cares about the lesser things, the sparrows of life, then how much more does he care about the greatest thing? You, the greater things, you and I. And, you know, I think about this every time I see a bird feeding somewhere. Yes, he cares. He cares about the lesser things of life. How much more? I mean, a sparrow wasn't created in the image of God, but I was created in the image of God. You were created in the image of God. And we were created to worship him, not only here on earth, but for all eternity. And the purpose for our creation was to bring God glory. So we, we can trust him. We can trust him in the lesser things that we face. We can also trust him in the greater things that we face. Zephaniah 3, 17 says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save us. He has the power to do it. And again, save is not always, you know, as we think of it, salvation in terms of deliverance from sin, but, but from a particular calamity if God wants to take you out of it and save you from it. And he has a variety of means of doing that. Sometimes he just demonstrates his power by taking us through it. Psalm 27, 1, David, Israel, second king, prayed, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? So if God is sovereign and God is the stronghold, David, David is saying, we don't have to fear anybody. Who is man? What can man do unto you? In all things of life, knowing that God, number one, he is good, right? We must learn to trust him and not give in to fear that can dominate us and cause us to doubt the goodness of God. Because that's what usually happens, right? You're afraid or you suffer some great loss and you attribute it, you know, to, to, to God. He, he can't be good. He can't be merciful. He can't be kind. And then so many people have deconstructed their faith. They've walked away from their faith because they don't, they don't have answers to the evil that they see all around them. And, and this is, you know, what some theologians have called the, the most perplexing of problems, the, theodicy, the problem of evil. Why the Holocaust? If you want to use that, why abortion? The slaughter of the innocents, the modern Holocaust. All right, continuing on, and see the statement I made here, number seven, sovereignty does not equate to meticulous control over every decision and movement in creation, as well as every detail of our existence. The fact that God can do anything does not demand that he must do everything in order to be God. Otherwise, he is not absolutely sovereign, some people say. Well, if God doesn't meticulously control everything, then he's not absolutely sovereign. 
but absolutely sovereign, that phrase is, is a redundancy. It's a redundancy, equivalent, as one writer states, to saying very unique. If something is unique, only one degree of uniqueness exists. It's simply unique. And God is simply sovereign. And that's it. You don't have to amp up his sovereignty. Because people do this all the time. Um, it's, some people seem to all they all they talk about. And yet, the word sovereign, it doesn't appear in Scripture just but a couple times in different translations. But the concept of sovereignty is there. Just as the word Trinity, right, doesn't appear in the Bible. But the Trinity is clearly in the Bible. So you, you don't have to go to an extreme to defend God's sovereignty by coming up with the idea of meticulous determinism. That God determines every single thing, good and evil. Good and evil. And actually, people sincerely believe that. They act, they act contrary to it every time they deliberate. Unless they... The only fallback is, you know, God controls all my deliberations. Every single thought. So the more traditional view is this. God ensures all things work out to the end that he has ordained. It doesn't mean that everything that happens is immediate, is immediate and direct will. I mean, if you do something really stupid, that's on you, brother and sister. Right? And look, we do stupid things all the time. Even things that we have been repeatedly told not to do, we do. So that leads me into this next statement, that God's permissive will is part of his sovereign will. Because God is sovereign, he must at least permit all events and happenings. Nothing happens apart from God's knowledge. So in that sense, I say God's permissive will is an aspect of his sovereignty. One theologian put it this way, concerning the will of permission. Those things which come to pass apart from God's positive agency or direct involvement, such as the sin of man. God permitted Adam and Eve to make a free will choice to to abstain from eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and be blessed or to violate that command and experience the judgment. These are things he foreknows will certainly come to pass. So open theism is false. God knows the future exhaustively. He knows, he knows, and this is mind-boggling. He, he not, not only knows all the decisions that you will make tomorrow. He knows all the possibilities that went into that, all that could have happened if you chose otherwise. Theologians call that counterfactuals. He knows what will happen tomorrow in your life, what could have happened tomorrow had the circumstances been different, what choice you might have made. I'm not going to go there. It's too deep, right? So, these are, these are things he foreknows will certainly come to pass, but is not the one who brings them to, to pass by his effort, involvement, intervention, or agency. What you had for breakfast. 
he may not he may not find pleasure in these things but nonetheless allows them for a greater purpose so even the things that are difficult things not make choosing what clothes you're going to wear or breakfast but things that are really really involve you know the evil things of this world god could prevent them but he allows them he allows them and obviously he allows them you know for for a greater purpose which we don't not know and which we cannot see the secret things belong to the lord but let me give you an example in acts chapter 14 verse 8 it says, and in Lystra, a, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking, Paul observing him intently and seeing that he had, he had the faith to be healed. And that's interesting, right? That statement alone is interesting. Said with a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. Now, when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices saying in the, the Lake, Lake Onian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker, hermeneutics, science of interpretation, and Hermes was to believe the interpreter for the gods, the speaker for the gods. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in the front of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. To sacrifice to these men as gods. So that's a little background. But it says in verse 14, but when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard this, they tore their clothes and they ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things, from all the idols, to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them. So he's pointing to God's sovereign power in creation. Who in bygone generations, and here's, here's the statement, allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. He didn't dictate the course of their, their evil. He allowed them, he permitted them to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in, in what in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven in fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And, that, and that's, you know, Jesus says that the rain falls on the what? The just and the unjust. The sun shines on, on the just and the unjust. I mean, in spite of the choices that men make every day against God and, and show forth their rebellious hearts, God is still good. This world is not absent the goodness of God, even in the darkest of times and in the darkest of places. Louis Ferris Schaefer said sin is in the universe by the permission of God, who hates it perfectly and who, being sovereign, has the power to keep it from manifestation if he chose to do so. But he obviously didn't choose to do that. Now, God does restrain evil. The Holy Spirit is restraining evil. Otherwise, who knows what things would be looking like, right? How, one way that, that God restrains evil is by civil government. We saw that in, in, in Romans chapter 13. So that he says he's not chosen to do that. That he did not hinder the manifestations of sin demonstrates that he, being what he is, must, must have a purpose in view other than the averting of sin. 
And again, this won't be known to us in this world. J. Barton Payne said, by the will of God, one may designate his sovereignty, his kingly decision, efficaciously executed among the children of men and thus from, free from all modification or change. What God says, I will, if there's no conditions attached to it, he will. He will. But by his will, we may also designate his preferences, his, his moral desires as revealed to free men or, or his subsequent responses to such men, whether of blessing or of penalty. And these latter obviously do change conditionally in accordance with the just deserts of those involved, indeed because of the very unchangeability of his attributes. So you can choose for or against God. And, and we do it all the time. And one example of this very clear in the scripture is in, in Samuel. 1 Samuel 8, 19, it says, The people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. Who was Samuel? He was a what? He was a prophet of God. What is a prophet of God? He is a spokesman for God. The people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but we will have a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go before us and fight our battles. So they didn't have a king. They looked at the nations who had a king, and they said, that's what we want. That's what we think is best for us. Samuel, you, you don't really know what's best for us, even though you speak for God. And it says in verse 21 of 1 Samuel 8, And Samuel heard all the words of the people and repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. Not that God didn't hear them. So the Lord said to Samuel, Heed their voice and make them a king. Give them what they want. Give them what they are freely choosing to have. And then remember, he says, it's not that they're rejecting you, Samuel. It's they're rejecting me, that I should not reign over them or rule over them. So God permitted them to have a king like the other nations with the resultant consequences. He was not the ideal king. So all of the evil things that happen in our world today are a result of sin. Which, which God does not cause, but permits to occur. Now, there are, there are those who object strongly to the language of permission. They, they really object to any idea of the permissive will of God, and they insist that God's permission is an ordained, decreed permission, in the sense that he really is behind it all. Although it appears appears that you're making a that that it that God has just allowed this as we see it from the human sense, but in reality there's there's much more to it. R.C. Sproul says what God permits, he decrees to permit. So the real debate here is this can God cause all the human evil that we see in the world today and in all of history? that he has expressly forbidden in his word. Is he, is, the, is he the cause of all of that? 
Are you going to lay that at the foot of the almighty, eternal God? Remember I said, whatever you think in terms of any attribute of God, you, you have to see it in the light of the full perfections of God. You have to understand his sovereignty in light of his goodness and his mercy and his righteousness and his holity, holiness and his purity. You say, well, well, think about the cross of Jesus, right? Love and justice met there, right? Righteousness and holiness met there. The justice of God, the love of God was poured out in Jesus Christ because the justice fell upon him, but his love was extended to everyone. And yet in the eternal predestination of God, John Calvin, who was very, very significant in, in putting this idea forth, he said, how foolish and frail is the support of divine justice afforded by the suggestion that evils come to be not by God's will, but merely by his permission. Of course, so far as they are evils, which men perpetrate with their evil mind, as I shall show in great detail shortly, I admit that they are not pleasing to God. Well, obviously not. But he says, but it is quite frivolous, a quite frivolous refuge to say that God otiously, that means idly, permits them when scriptures show him not only willing, but the author of them. The author, the originator of all the evil that exists in the world. 9-11, the Holocaust, the millions and millions of abortions that take place. In the Institutes of the Christian Religion, book one in chapter 18, he says this, it seems absurd that man should be blinded by the will and command of God and yet be forthwith punished for that blindness. I mean, that strikes us, you know, as foolish. Hence, recourse is had to the invasion that this is done only by the permission and not also by the will of God. He himself, however, openly declaring that he, God, does this, repudiates that idea. That men do nothing, nothing, save at the secret instigation of God and do not discuss and deliberate on anything but what he has previously decreed with himself, by himself, and brings to pass by his secret discretion is proved by numberless clear passages of Scripture. I doubt that very much. That men can do nothing save at the secret instigation of God. They can't permit, they, they can't do, do any evil thing unless God instigated it. That can't be right. Right? It's just just contrary to every sense of morality and justice and truth that we have. So we have to learn to be submissive to God's sovereign will and, and his permissive will. We can't fight against these things. And what God ordains and what God permits, we can't change anyway, right? James 4.13 says, Come now, you who say tomorrow, today or tomorrow, we'll go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. That's man's plan, right? But he says, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. So instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, 
we will do this or that. It doesn't, doesn't mean we don't make decisions. But ultimately, our prayer is directed to the Lord. And we understand whether he, whatever he's going to sovereignly do or permit to do is his, is, is his doing, is his choice. In 1 Peter 4.19, and by the way, when I think of that scripture, I just, I just say to myself, we have to trust God with all of our todays and all of our tomorrows. I mean, that's really what, that's really what it's saying. We don't even know if we'll have a tomorrow, right? But let's assume you, you, you will have a tomorrow. You don't know what's coming tomorrow. Absolutely don't know. 1 Peter 4.19 says, let those who suffer according to the will of God. Commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. It's hard in the midst of suffering, isn't it? Suffer according to the will of God. Understand that, that God is working in this. And then commit your souls to him. Trust in him, it means. And continue to do good. To continue to live your, 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 your life as God ordained that you should live. Commit yourself to a faithful creator. Romans 8.28, right? We know that all things work together for good. To those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. All things collectively over the course of our life are working together for good. We may not see that at the moment. And it doesn't say that all things are good because some things are horribly bad. But we can trust God that in the end, in the end, we'll, we'll see exactly how God had been working in all of these things. Lamentations 3.25 says, The Lord is good to those who wait for him. So we have a responsibility. To the soul who seeks him, we have responsibility. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. So if you're in a difficult circumstance, I can't guarantee you. I don't know what the outcome will be. No one does. But are you waiting upon the Lord? Are you seeking him in the midst of it all? Pursuing him? Pursuing a closer walk with him? No matter, no matter what that may involve. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord, the deliverance of the Lord. God may choose to deliver you. Choose to heal somebody. But more often than not, he doesn't. He doesn't heal people. Divine healing is miraculous, right? When it happens, and it's undeniable. But again, it's very rare. So because God desired to have a real relationship with us as creatures, his creation, people made him his very own image, the crown jewel of his creation. Because God desired to have a real relationship with us, one that involves choice, he allowed for evil to exist. So free will is very significant. 
God can force you to do everything. He can compel you. He can control you like a robot. But he doesn't. He allows you to make choices, contra-casual choices, free will choices, choices for or against him, because he wants a real relationship with you. You cannot force somebody to love you. You can't do it. You can go shake them up and say, love me. You're just going to push them further and further away from you. So if you want a real relationship, you know, with a person based upon love, it has to be mutual, right? It has to be mutual. Deuteronomy 39, 30, verse 19. And here's the choice. I call heaven and earth as witness today against you. This is part of the passage of scripture of the blessings and cursings in, in Deuteronomy. I call heaven and earth, Moses says, as witnesses today against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. There's very clearly choices laid out there. Life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, God says, choose life. I'm not telling you, I'm not going to make you choose life. But I'm telling you, the wise thing for you to do is to choose life. Choose blessing that both you and your descendants may live. So if there's someone here today, I don't know. You've never really come to that place where you understood the gravity of your sin. And you're just walking your, your own way. You're choosing your own way. Contrary to the will of God that you should turn from your sin, confess your sin to him, and receive Christ as your Savior, and become a new creature. You're, you're happy with the old creation, the old man. If that's you, I'd like to talk with you. Because you're on a path to destruction. We see it all the time. People destroying their lives by the sinful choices they make. And that's bad enough, but that's not the end, right? The end of it all, if they die without Christ, is what? Eternal death. That doesn't mean they go out of existence, not annihilationism. It's eternal death separation from God. It's eternal punishment in, a, in the place a Bible calls hell. And that's not old-fashioned. That's real. That's real. So the decisions you make have consequences. Every The decisions, the food you eat, everything we do, you know, has some degree of consequence, but nothing of greater consequence than that. The decision that you will make to receive or reject Jesus Christ as your Savior.